Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. This is Eric Veith. Today, we'll be offering you one of our encore episodes from a previous season. We hope you enjoy it. We'll be back with a new episode next time. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. We're here to talk about settlement negotiations part two. We've had a session already, and uh, this will pick up where we left off last time. John, in cases where you do want to make a demand and you perceive that the defendant is serious about entertaining a demand, how do you get your case to the right people, to the decision makers? Once you decide that the defendant's sincerely interested in, in, in talking settlement, I think there are certain things you need to do to make it as successful as you can, to do the best job you can and get the best settlement. One is you have to get to the decision maker. It's critical. Attorneys usually don't make the money decisions. Some attorneys might not get the case. I mean, they might not have appreciated all of the ins and outs of the case. Maybe for whatever reason, they didn't communicate something significant or something that bad happened. Maybe a witness tanked on them. But you really need to get the decision maker. There are reasons why you think your case is worth what it is. And you want to convey and communicate that information to the person who's actually making the decision. So whether it's a demand letter, whether it's a mediation, you need to get to the decision maker. Along those same lines, provide detailed information. You're asking for a significant amount of money on behalf of your client. The person making that decision is hearing about this probably for the first time. Remember, it's a business decision. The person presenting the decision must support and defend the recommendation. You want to make it easy for them. Lay it out in writing. Make it easy to read. Put key points in the first part of your demand. In other words, this is a, a business decision for the decision maker. You want to make it as easy as possible. Recently, what we've done is we've, we've done what we call a settlement video. And it's something that it's not the attorney with a PowerPoint, but something that might be 15 minutes, 20 minutes, that really lays out the whole case from A to Z, from beginning to end. We have a, a professional narrator. We have it professionally done. It's easy to watch. It's very factual. We add video clips of our client. We have video clips of experts, sometimes ours, sometimes the defendants. It's something that you can give to the defendant, the decision maker, your opponent, and let them look at it. Let them review it. It's something that can be shared very easily. And rather than put together a 30-page demand letter, a 20-page demand letter, you want to get the high points of the case into the hands of the person who is making the decision. And we've had some good success with that. When you do that, you don't have to say, oh, by the way, we're working hard on this case to get it ready for trial. That's cheap signaling to say we're getting ready for trial. Anyone can say that. But when you put that video together and it synthesizes the case and it looks like a closing argument itself, it looks like you've thought about it deeply. That's also a signal we are getting ready for trial. And that's that's always good to reinforce by actually showing rather than telling. Yeah. And in our videos, what we do is we lay out our case. We lay out. It's not us saying what it's about. It's actually showing the video clips of the witnesses and what they say. It's showing a video clip of our client talking about their injuries. And what we do always in all of these is we address the defenses. Here's what the defenses appear to be in the case. 
And here's why we don't think that they're going to stick. Here's why we don't believe it's supported by the evidence. And you may even, you know, if it's a good defense, say, yeah, you know, here's what it is. And here's, here's why we think it's not going to carry the day for you. So again, the whole purpose there is to put it together in a format that's easy to listen to, where somebody will actually listen to the whole thing and come away and understand what your case is about. Another topic, Eric, that I wanted to talk about, and you mentioned it earlier, when do you hold something back in settlement? And that's a really important issue when there's a significant chance you're going to try your case and you have some important information that you weren't required to disclose or when the defense attorney maybe just doesn't get it or appreciate the significance of the case. Do you want to lay that out? And I think what you do there is you do hold it back. You don't lay it out right in the beginning and you need to get to a point where you're convinced that there's a significant likelihood that you're going to settle the case. In other words, if, if both sides are fairly close and you're at the point where you think that the case is probably going to settle, I think that's when you, you lay all your cards on the table and say, hey, look, here's something else that we intend to present at trial. We don't know if you know about it or not, but we think this significantly adds to the value of the case. Now, what I've done in, in the past, I have done that with a mediator and I presented the evidence to the mediator and, and told the mediator they can talk about the fact that we have some evidence that's compelling, but not tell them what it is. So you can play it either way, but you just need to be careful. If I'm convinced that we're going to try the case and that case isn't going to settle, I'm always more likely to hold something back versus just laying it out on the table. I would assume the the rule on holding back, there, there's some things that are patently obvious in the case. There's facts that have come out and there's no reason not to talk about those, but you might have, and I know you and I have on cases spent hours trying to figure out a, a theme, a better way to present the evidence. And it might be that it's best presented at trial for the first time. And you wouldn't want to present something where the defendant can take that, think about it and try to neutralize it. So I would assume that's probably the basic test. You don't want to say something that can be neutralized if they had time to think about it. You need to pay attention to what's going on in settlement negotiations. I think the less said, the better. And I think you need to be a good listener. Listen to what you're hearing. Pay attention to the offers that are being made. And I think it's important to see who shows up at the mediation. I've heard comments from attorneys, you know, we got half our office working on this case. And I mean, what does that comment tell you? This might be during the course of the case. When somebody says that, obviously, it sounds like they get it. Somebody says they got half their office working on the case. That tells me that they understand the case and they appreciate the significance. Let me also mention, you know, these are some things I see. I don't want to say defense tactics, but that's what they are. They're defense tactics. We have an office where when we're going to trial, we have a team. We might have seven, eight people working on the case. So we're not overwhelmed or over overmanned or whatever you want to call it. But it's like clockwork. Case gets ready to go to trial and you just get bombarded with all kinds of filings. I mean, motion after motion, 32 motions in limine and Motions to exclude the plaintiff, exclude experts, exclude you, you know, whatever, just pages and pages of stuff. Don't get distracted with that. I mean, just uh, have somebody else in the office who's not involved in working up the case, who's not going to try the case, assist you with it. And again, repeatedly telling you about problems with your case. And always remember this. You are the best judge of your case. There is no question. If you do your job right and you work that case up, and you're prepared to try it, if you are actually prepared to try that case and you've done what you need to do to get it prepared, you're the best judge of your case. 
and you just need to stick to your guns. I know that we both know that one of the primary things is to get a trial setting. That makes everything happen. If you don't get the trial setting, it, it, it languishes. What do you think, based upon your experience, what's the difference in how long it takes to get the trial where you aggressively, a couple months after filing the case, you're, you're pushing hard to get that trial setting versus let's say you're waiting for the court or someone else to get it for you. What's the difference? Are, are we talking years difference? Yeah, Eric, I'm sitting here smiling and almost almost laughing. You ask anybody in my office, any of the attorneys, what's the most important thing on cases and what they're going to tell you without except get trial settings. We get trial settings as soon as that case is filed. We'll put a scheduling order in place, get a trial setting, lock it in, make it a meaningful trial setting. And I'll tell you why. When you don't have a trial setting, you can't even get discovery done in the case. At a plaintiff's firm, we do a lot of our work on cases that aren't filed yet talking to experts, getting information, medical records, the defense firm, all of their cases are in suit. We're both busy, but they have more deadlines. You're trying to schedule four or five depots in a case. Well, no, I can't because this other one's going to trial and this other one's going to trial. Get a trial setting. And you know, I don't care if it's 18 months out, 12 months out, whatever it is, but get a trial setting, get it on the book. And it helps everybody focus and it helps you get the case worked up. I had a case with one of the lawyers in our office and it was in St. Louis County. And I think from the time of the accident, it was an auto accident case, it was serious injuries. And from the time of the accident to trial, I think it was 14 months from the time of the accident to trial, <laughs> which you're laughing because that's sort of unheard of. And the defense attorney, for really no reason, they moved to continue the case. And we were done. We were ready. It wasn't that complicated to work it up. And the defense couldn't really come up with any additional work that needed to be done. They were pointing out all depots that we needed to take, that we, they said, you know, of witnesses or whatever. And we said, well, we're done. It was about two or three weeks before trial. And so they were really upset because of how efficient we were in working up the case and getting a early trial setting. And obviously the judge complimented us for our hard work and focus. He said, I, you know, I like moving cases quickly. There's nothing wrong with that. You guys did a good job and didn't continue it. We ended up trying it. How would you best avoid settlement negotiations and just try your case? Well, you know what? As I said, if you pick out a case that it's pretty much a case that you want to try, first of all, a very good case with a significant upside, and there might be something about the case that you just know whoever you're dealing with, you know, the defendant, the, uh, the other attorney, that you just know they're not going to offer you anything close to what that case is, is worth. And under those circumstances, and, and almost in every case, I don't make a demand. I, I don't make demands in most of the cases. When I'm asked for a demand, I'll have the conversation about what we think of the case, or I'll just, I'll ignore it. I mean, you know, here's the other thing too. If, if you have a case that's got significant upside and you make an appropriate demand, nine times out of 10, they'll hem and haw and say, oh, it's too big of a number and ignore you, which is wonderful. I would say the only thing I know of is don't make a demand and just spend all your time working it up. And if they want to make an offer, they'll make an offer. You know, we should probably mention, we. this is obvious to anyone who's gone this far on the podcast, that we're talking about personal injury cases primarily. There's a lot of other cases out there that might have some wrinkles to them. For instance, a divorce settlement would be significantly different in some ways. I've spoken to a friend of mine, you probably know him, Bruce Friedman, who, who does a lot of divorce cases in sure. town. He mentions to me that emotions more often dominate these settlements and there's unresolved issues that, that go beyond the numbers on the table. 
sometimes a client knows your opponent's breaking point. You know, this is a, a different kind of landscape than what we're talking about. Sometimes children are seen as pawns in the middle of the settlements and emotions are expensive. That was his, uh, his quote, emotions are expensive in those sorts of negotiations. It's a different world because, you know, you, you said money is the lightning rod in personal injury cases. That's all you're asking for is money to settle a case in these, in divorce cases, for instance, there's, there's many other things at play. I assume you've never done corporate mergers. I certainly haven't. There's probably a lot of things that go into play in those kind of cases. I would hope that many of the principles that we've talked about can be transferred over and could be useful in some of those cases too. And there's many other kinds of cases out there. But just a note that obviously we're, we're talking about a particular type of case. And uh, hopefully, you know, some of this stuff can be useful no matter what kind of case you're trying to settle. You know what I think in cases like that, they might be a lot tougher because you're negotiating things other than money. Right. I mean, in most personal injury cases, I mean, there are a lot of emotions and all of that, but at the bottom line is it's a single number. Whereas those types of cases, you're negotiating things other than the amount. I know you have two rules for how to settle a case for a fair amount. You know, don't concern yourself with settlement. It's, it's interesting. The way to settle a case for a fair amount is to almost avoid settlement. It's almost like run from it and just try your case, right? Prepare to try your case. Yeah. And I think the, the one thing if you spend your time and energy and effort working the case up, making it a better case, getting it ready to try, the settlement portion takes care of itself. I'm not saying that it won't settle. It's just that will take care of itself. If the defendant is interested in settling the case, I'm sure they know what they want to pay and they'll offer it to you at some point. And if it's worth taking, you take it. If not, you try it. And uh, the opposite, you know, it seems like if you want to settle the case and you make it clear you're interested in settling the case and you call and repeatedly want to discuss settlement, it seems to me that's it. You, you can't take a more weak position if, if you're trying to settle a case. You can't, yeah, I think, you, I think you're sending the wrong message under those circumstances that you're maybe too anxious to settle the case. And you shouldn't be. If you got a good case, you should want to try it. I also worked as a defense attorney, as you know, and I think it's a good idea if you're going to be a plaintiff attorney to work as a defense attorney in order to see through their eyes for a while. And I've also written those letters. And just like you, we talk about the plaintiff attorney and how successful they are, how dangerous they are as advocates. There's another part of that letter, though, that I always struggled with. It was the amount of the demand, what the case is worth, I should say. And what I did, and I'm curious as to how you used to do this when you were a defense attorney, I hated to just put a number down and say, this case is worth X. It seemed like there was always a range of possibilities. What were your thoughts back when you were a defense attorney on, on what to tell your client about the value of the case? The number one thing really is who the plaintiff is. And if they're going to relate well to the jurors, if the jury is, likes them, and wants to help them. I mean, most people want to help people they like, who they can relate to. And so I think the most important issue, most important piece of evidence is the plaintiff, who the plaintiff is. And that's if you're on the defense side, figuring out what you're going to offer or on the plaintiff side with what you're going to demand, who is your plaintiff? Boy, if you have somebody that you just love spending time with and they're honest and sincere and hardworking, the value of that case goes way up. The other thing, if I were on the defense side, and, you know, I do it on the plaintiff side. You evaluate who the attorney is. It's funny, attorneys in my office, the younger attorneys will come in and say exactly what you're asking. You know, here are the facts of this case, this and this. What's it worth? Okay, what's that case worth? And in my head, I'm thinking, well, number one, who's handling it, right? 
who's handling the case. That's a big, big part of it. Who the plaintiff is, where is the venue? But I think what you need to figure out first is, are they serious about settling the case? When they want a demand, you ask, you get a demand, you get asked for a demand in every single case. And I know from past experience with certain defendants that they're just not going to offer you at that point what the case is worth. And I think, why bother with it? I just don't, I don't want to give a demand. And I don't. Let's move on and learn more about the case and, and work it up. And I think as far as, as what is a case worth, and what a great question, what a great question. You got to remember, jurors, almost always, almost 100%, they're going to be asked to assess damages for disability, disfigurement, pain and suffering, maybe even death. And these are 12 people who come into the courtroom who not only have never been asked that, but they've probably never even given it a thought in their lives. And what they do know about the results of jury trials, personal injury trials, the ones that are on the news and are publicized are amounts that are big cases, you know, big amounts. So my sense is from talking to jurors and voir dire and focus groups is number one, they have no idea what it's worth, but they know it's worth a lot. And I think it's hard to overstate what that case is worth. And, you know, I know the golden rule and you can't argue the golden rule and everybody else, but jurors still think that. I mean, if I saw something happen terribly to somebody, say they're stopped at a red light and rear-ended and their face is smashed into the windshield with fractures and hardware in their face, somebody could look at that and say, well, you know, that case is worth $500,000 or a million dollars or whatever. But I'll tell you this, I don't know a single human being that I, that I know of anywhere that would go through that for any money in the world. So, you know, what is that number? It could be 5 million. It could be 8 million. It could be 1 million. It could be one and a half. I think a lot of it has to do with how you present the evidence, who's presenting it and what you ask for. Right. I mean, it's, it's the whole anchoring thing that you and I've talked about. And here's a problem too, I think with attorneys deciding what cases should settle for. Attorneys decide what cases should settle for based on what? their experience settling similar cases. And that's really not what we should base it on. We should base it on what a jury will assess in that case. Because we, I think most lawyers are anchored to numbers that are way too low because of what they've been seeing in the past. And why did that case settle? The last case, did it settle because there was some problem on liability? Did it settle because the venue wasn't very good? So if you have a significant injury, there's no cap or limit on that. And when somebody looks at a number, I mean, if I give somebody a number in a case for a demand and they look at me and tell me that's too high, and my, my answer is for who? Who's it too high for? I mean, I, I, I don't, like I said, it's not too high for my client, what they went through. And the other thing too, that's very helpful is to have a track record or a history of similar settlements and verdicts where the amount was way more than that. What is the demand? I think a lot of times you might have a, a policy limit, you know, cap, things like that. I mean, I've had death cases where somebody was hit by a truck, a couple was killed, and the first thing I was asked for was their, their medical bills. I don't present medical bills. I mean, I just don't. It's, it's the whole anchoring issue. So the interesting thing and the exciting thing about this is no one can tell you what that case is worth. No one can. Nobody can tell you your demand is too high. Nobody can tell you you're asking for too much in that case because no one really knows for sure what a jury's going to decide. 
and you know it depends on what that jury looks like it depends on what venue you're in it depends on the attorney handling and presenting the case it depends on the attorney defending the case so to me you certainly want to give your client the benefit of the doubt i can tell you this i've never made a demand in a case and then settled it for more than that demand maybe i have a couple times but <laughs> that's kind of rare so you need to give some thought into what the amount the demand is and you know another thing too if if it's a really good case and you give a demand that's not received well by the defendant and they off, don't offer you anything they may have just done you a big favor because that means you get to try the case okay so maybe we can move on to the next topic about mediation there's a western district federal court that i i don't know if they're still doing this but about, oh, I guess it was 10 years ago, I, I had a case filed over there. And then they have a mediation team that calls you up and says, we're going to schedule your mediation in about four months. <laughs> and everybody, universally, the plaintiff and the various defendants all said, we won't be ready. This won't be productive. And then they, they forced it. And it was uh, no negotiation. This is, this is the way they do it. So we sat in a pretty meaningless mediation that had... Uh, only some written discovery done at that point, not much more. And it was a, it was really a, really a frustrating situation. And it, it, I'm, I'm not doing this to just criticize that procedure over there. Maybe they, maybe they don't have it anymore, but it seems like if you're going to have a mediation that means something, you need to have information in front of you, things to talk about. With that as an introduction, what what do you think about how to make a mediation meaningful, how to stop wasting time at a mediation? Well, first of all, I agree with you. I think court-ordered mediations are rarely successful because both parties need to want to be there. And a court or anybody else can't tell two parties here, go in the room and, and, and settle your case unless both parties are interested in, in trying to get it resolved. It's just not going to happen. I haven't had good success with court-ordered mediations. I think my mediation success, settling a case at mediation for me is probably less than 50% successful. So out of all the mediations I have attended, less than half of those have resulted in, in, in settling the case, I would say at or, or shortly after the mediation. And I think there are really two things that can help with that. And we can call them two suggestions or rules for mediation. Number one, and I do this in most cases, and I think it's a good idea. If it's the defendant that is asking me to mediate a case, first of all, I really am not inclined to do it unless it's within a month or so of the trial or, or a couple weeks of the trial. And that's just because you just don't have anybody's attention. I mean, there are too many things working against you at that point. And so number one, it needs to be very close to the trial. You need to have a good, solid trial setting, a meaningful trial setting. And then secondly, I often ask the defendant to put a significant initial offer on the table, to, to put an offer on the table to show the good faith. And let me give you an example. And this, this is a true example for me in a case. And this is not the only time it's happened. It ha has happened many times. I get asked for a mediation or a defendant will contact me and say, hey, let's mediate. Usually several times before I respond, I'll say, look, I'm going to give you a demand. You want to mediate the case. Let me give you a demand first because the demand I give you may change your mind about wanting to mediate. It may be too high for you or your client, and we're just wasting our time. And I did this in a case where I was asked to mediate. That's exactly what I said. Let me give you a demand first. I made a $25 million demand in the case, which was a legitimate demand. I thought it was a, it reflected the value of the case. And we went forward with the mediation. 
And we spent all day at the mediation, all day with a $25 million demand, and the defendant came up with $250,000 at the end of the day. Well, what a big, absolute waste of time. And that has happened to me more often than not. I mean, it really has, where they ask for the mediation, I give them a demand so they know what we're thinking in terms of the value of the case. And then with the, we get to the mediation and for whatever reason, they're shocked or surprised or unprepared that the amount was as high as it is. And so we sit there all day wasting time. I'd rather be back at the office working on the case. But I will tell you that in those same cases where that has happened, those cases have settled closer to the higher number than the lower number. They've paid a significant amount of money. I will tell you this, in those cases, where that has happened, uh, we were still able to settle those cases for a significant amount of money, much closer to our demand than than what was offered. So, I, you know, I think overall, Eric, if I was given advice about mediations in general, I would say the two rules are schedule your mediation as close as you can to your trial setting and try to get the defendant to make an initial offer, make a demand before the mediation and try to get them to make an initial offer before you go to the mediation. Any other thing that happens too, and I don't know, maybe there's some school that they go to for posturing or settlement negotiations, but I'll make a demand two weeks before mediation. We'll go to the mediation and four or five people will show up on the other side. They'll sit in another conference room and it'll take them two hours and 15 minutes to make their first offer, which to me, I mean, I don't know whether they're watching videos or ordering lunch or whatever, but if they had my demand for two weeks, yeah, I don't know why it would take them two hours and 15 minutes to make their first offer. So again, I don't know. I probably settle the same percentage of cases as others. I just don't waste a whole lot of time with demand letters. And the mediations for me have just not been very fruitful. I echo that. And especially the mornings of mediations for exactly what you said, it, it seems like things can progress logically, but things don't. And the mornings of mediations have been notoriously unproductive for me. It seems like things, when they do settle at a mediation, they pick up later in the afternoon. And I don't get that. And I think your, your approach is a good one for priming the pump. Here's my demand. It's two weeks before the mediation. Put some good faith money on the table before the mediation. Now we're trying to counter this problem with the mediation mornings. Uh, is that your experience too? That yeah. And Eric, here's another thing too, that we're, I think we're missing or overlooking. I would say this is John Simon's three rules for a productive mediation. One, schedule it very close to the time of the trial. Two, make a demand and ask the defendant to respond to that demand before the mediation. And three, above all, most important, get a good mediator. And, and by that, I mean somebody who's going to cut through the BS and not let somebody sit in the other room for two hours, not responding somebody that will come in, cut to the chase and say, look, sides are too far apart. There's no reason to go and go forward or waste a whole day. Let's all go home. And somebody that can quickly find out if there's a reason to actually be there. So I think those are it. The timing of the mediation is, is very important. Making sure the defendant is sincerely interested in, in settling the case. And then also getting a good mediator who, you know, and by the way, uh, I mean, a good mediator, somebody will come in my room and tell me things I don't want to hear. You know, say, John, you're, you know, you're way out of line. You need to come down, whatever, and do the same thing in the other room. If you have a mediator that's, I think, is afraid to hurt people's feelings or whatever it is, you got the wrong mediator. I know I've got a good mediator when they come in my room. And the first thing that they want to talk to me about is the thing that's worrying me most about my kids. <laughs> you know, I know they've done their homework. I know they've looked at everything. And that's what a good mediator does. 
You want somebody who's going to call it like it is and find out right away, are we going anywhere with this? Or are we just all wasting our time? So my success rate in mediations, when those three things happen, where it's close to trial, defendant has responded to my demand before the mediation, and we're still willing to go, and a good mediator, my success rate goes way up. So I'm not being negative or sour on all mediations. I'm just saying I think there are things that you can do that will prevent a whole lot of wasted time and make your mediations a lot more productive. All right. So uh, that ends our topic today. I'm Eric Veef. And I'm John Simon. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this Encore episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back next time with a new episode. See you then. The Jury is Out is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. Share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. Subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.